We are slowly making our way through chapter 11 of John's Gospel. As we do that, we're already starting to see, you know, um, some themes reemerge. There are times when we approach a narrative like this, and I think it's useful to preach an entire narrative. And this is why, there, you know, there are times when you're going to come to Gospel Life Church, and we're going to we're going to have like 52 verses in a section. Other times we're going to have like seven verses in a section that we're walking through. And that's because there are times when we want to say, okay, even though this is a really long narrative section, it does make a central point that we want everybody to understand how it ties together. And I've preached John 11 at large, like the entire narrative together, but I, I found so much use, even, even in my own preparation over the last few weeks, in taking the scriptures and working through chapter 11 piece by piece, because in this, we're able to have some specific reflections on matters of life and death that I think are, are useful, that I think the Lord is using to, to help us. And so within that, we're seeing these themes repeat. And here's one, as we talked about it even a few weeks ago, we find it understandable in our culture to speak of the judgment of God or the exclusivity of God, or the ethics of God, or even the concept of the Trinity, you know, the triune God, as being difficult doctrines to understand and believe in our time. Like, we have a genuinely hard time wrapping our minds around these doctrines, some because of cultural barriers, like, how could God be so opposed to something that my culture so celebrates, right? So there's, like, there are cultural barriers, but others because of intellectual barriers, I can't conceive of how this doctrine works. I can't conceive of how the Trinity works. And so I can't believe it to be true, right? So we have cultural barriers, intellectual barriers. But, but one doctrine that gets overlooked in terms of its difficulty to grasp, and we talked about the grace of God a few weeks ago being like that. We also see the love of God, surprisingly, at times, being a difficult doctrine to understand. Um, this is why we've seen helpful lectures, helpful Writing on this very topic from evangelical scholarship, a couple that I would commend to you would be uh, God is Love by Gerald Bray, which is a more expansive biblical theology on God's love. Or the more short and straightforward, The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God by D.A. Carson. But the question is, why would, we, why would we struggle to understand something like the love of God? I mean, after all, we have no difficulty in our culture speaking about Jesus as being loving, primarily, right? In fact, listen, nearly every adaptation of Jesus in the culture in which we live right now attempts to show a Jesus marked primarily in love. And I would tell you, this attempt is good and right. God is love. Jesus is marked by love. But the problem occurs when we attempt to describe this Jesus as love in the way that our culture defines love. You know, that's the nature of the struggle. To love me in my culture, to love me right now in our cultural moment, means to always accept me, to never reject anything I've decided for myself so long as I truly believe it's for my good so you should support me. To never decide otherwise from what I've determined within my, you know, the confines of my heart. But here's the rub. Jesus' love is never expressed this way in Scripture. And in fact, 
you know, this definition of love that our contemporary culture speaks with and talks with, holds as primary, is a relatively new understanding of love, right? So I'm, I was born in 1980, so they call me a zennial, right? So like, they say like 1960 to 1980, if you're born in that time fr frame, you're Gen X. 1980 to 2000, you're a millennial. I'm 1980, I'm like the hinge that holds all of it together, you guys. <laughs> and so as a zennial, I have some things, arguably, I would argue more in common with Gen X. But there are some things that I hold in common with millennials. And I, I would say that the millennial side of me <laughs> tends to express itself with skepticism. I tend to be skeptical of things. But the thing is, you know, I, I wrote a, a series of blog posts on this where I, I talked about the nature of my skepticism and then I picked two claims that people make today that I'm really skeptical of. But the nature of my skepticism it's called Confessions of a Skeptical Pastor. You can see it at the GLC blog. But the nature of my skepticism has to do with like newer novel claims. Like if someone shows up with a brand new claim, a brand new novel claim, I think we have every reason. Like this is not tested. This is not something that we've seen active in cultures before. Thousands of, of years of church history, or of, of history, let alone church history, right? History in general has concluded otherwise, and now all of a sudden we're making this new claim we have good reason to be skeptical, right? So my skepticism kicks in when someone defines love in the way that I've just talked about it, our culture's definition. In the diff difficult doctrine of the love of God, again, like short, very readable, 84-page paperback lecture that Carson shared on the subject. I commend it to you. You can read it in a couple of afternoons. Um, he writes it this way. He says, we live in a culture in which many other and complementary truths about God are widely disbelieved. I do not think that what the Bible says about the love of God can long survive at the forefront of our thinking if it's abstracted from the sovereignty of God, the holiness of God, the wrath of God, the providence of God, or the personhood of God, just to name a few. So the way that we talk about love actually rejects all of these other things that we find in the Scripture that are good and true. So he so what's the result of this? He says, the result, of course, is that the love of God in our culture has been purged of anything the culture finds uncomfortable. The love of God has been sanitized, democratized, and above all, sentimentalized. This process has been going on for some time. My generation was taught to sing, what the world needs now is love, sweet love, closest you're going to get me to sing it in which we robustly instruct the Almighty that we do not need another mountain. We have enough of them, but we could do with some more love. The hubris is staggering. It has not always been so. It has not always been so. This is a new or novel idea, and this is important in our text this morning because here I would argue that we see an example of how we tend to want to soften these occasions. Soften these occasions of Jesus being indignant or angry. You know, when he expresses emotions that are on par with anger, we don't know what to do with that, especially the kinds of examples that we find in our culture, in, in our text this morning. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that's how we think of him. We're going to talk about this at the conclusion, too. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild. And he is gentle. He's gentle as we approach him. You have to know that. He's gracious. He's good. But in our passage today, we see the entailments of his love go out further than that. You know, the implications of his love 
go out further than this. And we see that in two sections of the text. So, all right, I want to make sense of our outline before we, we start. This is what our outline looks like. We're going to see two responses of Jesus to what the people are doing in the text, all right? And then we're going to see two responses of the people to what Jesus is doing in the text. Two responses of Jesus to the people, and those two responses of Jesus are going to have like one shared reason, one shared motivation on the part of Christ. And then we're going to see two different responses of the people to Jesus with, again, one shared reason, one shared motivator. If that doesn't make sense yet, I think it will. So um, hang with me. Starting in verses 28 to 32. Look there with me. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, and when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still there in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, so if you remember, just some context. The last couple of weeks, Jesus, you know, heard about this illness of Lazarus, and he stays where he was in the region of Botanea. And the reason he stays after hearing about his illness, John tells us, is, is why? Because of his love, right? So we're going over things we've gone over a lot. His love for Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Two days later, he tells his disciples, Lazarus is dead, okay? And then he tells them they're going to go there to wake him. He leaves for Botanea and Bethany. You know, he leaves this place in Botanea where he's been celebrated, where people are coming, they're responding to him by faith. John the Baptist's ministry is bearing fruit. He leaves that to go back to this place where he was just very, very recently you know, almost arrested. Like they tried to arrest him, they tried to stone him, where he's not being celebrated, quite the opposite. And the reason he made that trip, again, was out of love for Mary and Lazarus and Martha and all of us and all of us, right? So it's only a matter of time before we're really drilling down into this concept of love. Martha encounters him. On his arrival, she understandably expresses grief, but also she, she expresses faith. Now, I unpacked that text last week. It's, it's pretty crucial to understand in the context. I invite you to go back and listen to the podcast but after expressing that grief and faith to Jesus, Martha now goes to Mary in verse 28. And this is where we pick things up. Okay, this is where we pick things up. What happens? Well, Martha attempts to arrange a private meeting between Mary and Jesus, telling her in private, in verse 28, right? The word private is emphasized here. Privately, Jesus has arranged for, he's arrived and calling for her. So there's this private meeting being arranged. I don't think we need to get too creative in the text as to why there's a private meeting. There are a lot of theories that are given that I think are a little too creative, a little too cute about the meaning behind this, like Martha and Mary, or Martha in particular, is trying to help Jesus by protecting him from these Jews from Jerusalem who are going to use... I don't think that's what's happening. I think it's actually far more maybe dull or normal than all of that. And it's something that we're very familiar with. Listen, when a family is in mourning because of a loss, like when there's been 
death in the family. Two things are usually true. First of all, people have come out to support that family. We do that, and that's a good thing. We come around the family. We do that at the visitation. We do that at the funeral. Kindly expressing condolences, support to those who grieve, to grieve with the family. It's meaningful. But the second thing that happens in the midst of that, the family, though certainly blessed by that support, is also in need of a certain amount of privacy in which they can grieve together. This is a very important thing. And there's some tension there, you know. If you've ever been to a funeral, if you've ever had a loved one die, there's some tension there between the family needing that privacy and the support that the community gives. And very much like what can actually happen at funerals today, here in the text, there are those present at the funeral who I would say, even out of good intentions, encroach on that privacy because Martha's trying to arrange this private meeting. She rises to go out. Those who see her get up just immediately follow. They assume she's going to the tomb. Okay, that's, that's the context. So a quick word about who these mourners are. Because again, I think we tend to get overly creative, overly cute with how we deal with the text. Unfortunately, it affects how we interpret it at times. Because we need to say, despite the fact that some of these, okay, so some of the people here are paid mourners, paid grievers, professional grievers. It's a common feature of first century funerals, first century Jewish funerals. In fact, even a poor family would have been expected. The expectation socially was even a poor family would have like at least two instrumentalists, usually it would be flutists, playing funeral music, traditional dirges, funeral music, and one professional wailing woman. All right? Um, And we hear that, and, you know, so that's what a poor family would have been expected to have. I think as we see in the text this morning, as we'll see in the burial arrangements next week, as we'll see at the beginning of chapter 12, this family is not poor. Okay? Um, So there are quite a few mourners who are present. Professional mourners, those who are friends of the family. But I do want to suggest to you that, like, while we, we chuckle a bit at the professional wailing woman idea. While that's foreign to us, it might seem inauthentic or disingenuous to our culture. At least in this text, there are no negative overtones or connotations associated with it here. Okay? It's not called out here. I'm going to make the case for that as we go. Because I think that that can make us place the central problem in the wrong spot. It can make us apply, you know, gospel salve to the wrong wrong situation. It's not really giving people the benefit of the doubt, which I think is important to kind of understand what is the issue here, okay, according to the context. So, Mary finds uh, Jesus, comes to him, falls at his feet, and says the first part of what her sister expressed in the text last week, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And I wrestled with this a bit, you know, for the last few weeks, actually, I wrestled with this, because on the one hand, at least how it's recorded in the narrative, as we come to it, there is something of a contrast with her sister's response here. It's, it's absent the expression of faith that Martha added in verse 22. So if you look at verse 22, but even now I know, Martha said, that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Mary doesn't express this. And so I said last week that I thought maybe Mary's comment might be more of a rebuke. But even as I was studying the text this week, I think rebuke is it's too harsh a word. I don't think it's that. 
Even if she leaves out that second statement, the statement itself at the very least demonstrates she believes Jesus to have the power to have healed Lazarus. The reality that she just falls at his feet demonstrates the sheer grief that she's experiencing, you know? I think this is, a, this is an emotional response of grief. And it's here that we see um, the first of Jesus' two response, responses uh, to the people here in the text, okay? So verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Okay, so a couple of things in order to understand how Jesus is responding here, there's a couple of things we have to get, otherwise we won't. We'll miss, I think we'll miss the point of the text. The first thing we have to deal with is the meaning of this term that's translated deeply moved. Right? When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit. Okay, so I, just stepping back, I think this is such a great example of what we typically do, even in English translations. And listen, I say it all the time, translation work is hard. And the men who do it are much smarter than me. But we do see these examples of even in English translations when we come on a phrase that makes us uncomfortable related to the person of Jesus. You can see this actually happening in scribal traditions where a scribe will read something that Jesus does and they think, well, that must not be the right Greek word. And so they kind of change it. And you see the variant later on in the, the, the history of the, the manuscripts and you can see where it was changed. Like we... Translators do the same thing. We come upon it, oh, Jesus can't, what, what's happening there? So, so okay, <laughs> deeply moved. While not horrible as a translation, it's pretty vague, and it can mean a lot of things. And listen, my, my real beef with it isn't just that it can mean a lot of things, but one of the things that really can connote in our culture, like our time, that's important to understand, is empathy kind of deal, right? Like when you're... When you're deeply moved, what do you typically, th just think about it. What do you typically think of? From, from my perspective, I mean, the way that another translation expresses it, I think is along the same lines, but it's way worse. So it says, deeply touched. Okay, so I don't love deeply moved. It's okay, it's fine. But, but I hesitated to say it this strongly, but I think I'm going to. In no universe does this phrase in this context mean anything remotely like what our culture means by touched. If I watch a movie with my family, at the end of it I say, wow, that was touching. What do I mean by that in our cultural time? Like, a lot of times it means the Kleenex isn't too far away, right? Like, it probably means I'm watching a Christmas movie marathon on the Hallmark Channel, all right? But in, in the first century, there are other touching movies outside of Hallmark Channel, but in the first century, the culture and context in which Jesus spoke these words and, which, and in which these words were written and recorded. And that's what we're after. Listen, anytime we do Bible study, and I'm going to spend more time on this later on because there's a lot of issues with this in John, in particular because of the way he writes. But there's this word study approach to Bible study that we got to straighten out here. Um, we're not after the root of the term. We're not after like some concordance and how it tells us the word was used in eight different places across eight centuries. And now we're going to take those eight things and sandwich it into one... I told you I wasn't going to talk about it yet, and I'm talking about it, but the point is, what we're after, when we study the Bible, what we're after is the contemporary usage of the term. How is this term used in the time it's being 
recorded, written in history. What would they have meant by it at this time? And listen, it's pretty straightforward. Like outside of the Bible, in the first century, this word was almost always used to express like the noise a horse makes when he's angry, the stomping, angry snorting of a horse. George Beasley Murray, just to to show you, like um, commentaries are unanimous on this. It's not, this isn't like an up in the air thing. George Beasley Murray says, German translations get it right. Way to go, Germans. Most English translations soften the passage. Grant Osborne says, the verb connotes deep-seated anger or rage. Carson writes, it is lexically inexcusable to reduce this emotional upset to empathy, grief, pain, or the like. Okay, and so some of you, I can see, I can almost see your hand wanting to shoot up. You're like, Jeremy's always talking about the ESV. I've got the New Living Translation. Shout out to the New Living Translation. All right? Um, That's how they translate it. A deep anger welled up within him. That is right. That is correct. So all this to say we're standing on firm ground when we conclude that Jesus is, in fact, outraged. That is the first response of Jesus in the text. And the text says the outrage occurred in his spirit, which is just another way of saying that it's happened within himself. It's like um, an inner reaction that Jesus is having. So the second question then is why is he outraged? The second thing we have to deal with, right? We have a hard time understanding his outrage, so asking this is the natural question. And, And because we're uncomfortable with the anger to begin with, especially in this context, but we also understand once we've done the work that there's no choice, other choice in terms of what's happening. People want to conclude, well, it must be, you know, he's angry, but it must be something wacky or wrongheaded about like these people in particular, something they're doing behind the scenes that they're doing wrong, you know, and the textual evidence for that comes from The preamble to the anger in verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, right? So that's that's true. This is correct. That's grammatically what appears to lead to what he sees around him is grammatically what appears to lead to his anger, to his outrage. But the conclusion is typically. So this is how you'll hear it a lot. So he must be upset with their hypocrisy. They're paid mourners after all. They don't really love Lazarus. They're just there to get a paycheck. We hear that a lot in John 11. Or some have said, so he must be upset with them like specifically because they're forcing a miracle on him the way mom did in chapter 2. You know, um, but both of these I don't think are correct at all. I, I don't think they have any support in the text. In terms of the hypocrisy of the paid mourners, Look, the text simply does not draw any distinction at all between the way the people around Mary and Martha grieve and the way that Mary and Martha are grieving. If you see the distinction, find it in the text, but I don't see it. In fact, in terms of what makes Jesus angry, what does it say? When Jesus saw her weeping, so that's Lazarus' sister who's very emotional, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. So there's, there's not a distinction here. I don't think that's it. And the idea that they're forcing his hand to perform a miracle, it's just impossible. Jesus already told his disciples he's coming to wake Lazarus. He already told Martha, your brother will rise again, so it doesn't make any sense. So I do think there's, I do think there's something Jesus is seeing here that's leading him to become angry. I don't think it's directed to these people, and I think this is the best approach. I, 
First, I think Jesus sees the havoc that sin has wrought in the world. I think this very much fits with John's gospel at large. He sees that sin has brought about chaos and disorder and death and destruction. This is not the way that things were meant to be. This is the creator looking in on his creation and seeing it as it was not to be. And it outrages him. But I also see, think he sees another aspect of how sin has, has wrought destruction. And it's through unbelief. Pervasive unbelief. And I, I don't think, see, I don't think this is simply directed at these people. I think this is directed at humanity in general. I don't think that this is like something specific to them. I think that this is to everyone. To everyone. I think it's why Jesus says in Revelation that he'll show up again with a sword and judgment to put everything to rights. His anger flows out of his love. Flows out of his love. He sees his creation destroying itself. You know, he's creator. John has told us this is the creator of everything. The Word made flesh. The one who spoke the world into existence. And he sees the world he created and he sees it destroying itself. He's outraged. He sees unbelief in this world. You know, despite the fact that he's just, he is present with them and he's just revealed himself, as, as we'll talk about again, as the resurrection. And there's unbelief. It should remind us of Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians 4 when he talks about those who weep without hope. That's what Jesus sees as he looks around him. Those weep, it's, it's not that there are tears that aren't genuine for Lazarus, it's that there are tears of grief with no hope, despite the fact that the hope of the, of the world stands in their midst. That kind of weeping without any hope outrages Jesus. It enrages him because he's present with them. We dealt with the same inner conflict that we have when we talk about you know, God's anger flowing out of his love. When we preached through Zechariah, we talked about, talked about how God's judgment isn't the antithesis of, of his love, but it flows from the same source. You know, God's judgment, his anger towards sin, it's not the antithesis of his love, but it flows from the same source as his love. The idea is the same here in John 11. He's outraged at unbelief, which will one day bring about his judgment. And that isn't the antithesis of his love for his people, but rather it flows from the same source. Of course he's outraged. In order for God's kingdom to be established among his people, wickedness must come to an end. So the way in which that kingdom will be brought into the world fully and finally is in part through judgment because God's outraged by sin. He can't abide it. So when we were in Zechariah together, I quoted um, ancient Near East scholar Elizabeth Octomire, who was super helpful throughout Throughout our series, but she writes this, the Bible is testifying to the fact that evil must be actively resisted and done away with. It does not disappear by itself. Hitler's must be made to cease their holocausts. Someone has got to break the swords and fashion the spears into pruning hooks. But by testifying that God is the divine warrior, the Bible is saying that the ultimate destruction of evil belongs to him. And listen, ultimate destruction of evil, what else could it be motivated by if it's not motivated by his Love. So if we, if we want to conclude, Jesus should never be angry. Jesus should never come in judgment against these things. Jesus is just overreacting in the text, so that must not really be his true response because it wouldn't be appropriate for him to be angry. Jesus should never return with a sword against the things that outrage him. Then we're concluding that Jesus shouldn't be outraged by that which is actively destroying the very world that he created in love. 
which is not loving. And I don't think any of us really want to see what such a doctrine would mean in the world if it were true. Like remember, remember John's definition of world in this account. We've talked about it several times as we're making, because John's talking about the world, the world repeatedly, routinely, right? So talked about it several times. For the men who are studying 1 John on Wednesday nights, we're, talking, we're seeing it there too. What's his definition of the world? And I really, this is something that's good to commit to memory here. Um, modified from several commentaries, the created world order in act of rebellion against its creator. That's the world in John's gospel. The created world order in act of rebellion against its creator. And, and Jesus sees that happening and it outrages him. Okay, so that is the first response in the text. But it's here that we see more briefly and straightforwardly the second response in verses 34 and 35. Look there with me. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Here we see the second response, which is compassion. It's not that compassion isn't present at all in the text. It's, it's just not what the first response was intending to communicate. But we see it here. How do we see it here? Well, Jesus can't be crying simply because Lazarus died. This isn't that kind of grief. It, it, that can't be the case because he's, he knows what's going to happen. He's going to go deal with that in a minute. He's Jesus. He has the, the keys to everything, to death. He'll defeat death ultimately. So why was he outraged? Well, he saw it's the same thing, same thing. That caught, or why was he, he having compassion? The same thing that outraged him. The havoc wrought by sin, suffering, death, the destructive chaos in this world order. The unbelief that's so pervasive among the people, it moves him to outrage, but it moves him secondly to compassion. And both of them have this same ultimate source, the same ultimate shared motivator, which is love. Listen, this world order moves him deeply to anger. Here we have the created world order, an act of rebellion against its creator. That's the world, but here we also see God so loved the world. He so loved the world that the pervasive evil and unbelief in it moved him to outrage. He so loved the world that the same pervasive evil and unbelief moved him to tears. And look, this is important because we're called to grow in the likeness of Christ. Christians are called to grow in his likeness. And what this text shows us very practically is that if you're going to have complete expression of Love in this world, like Christ, those who claim to, to walk in Christ must walk as Jesus did, to live in him, to abide in him, must live as he did. If you're going to have a more complete expression of his love in this world, if you want to grow in maturity in your love toward others in this created order who actively rebel against their creator, then you can't position these two responses against each other the way that I think we want to do naturally. You can't soften it. You can't say that, well, Christians should have one response but not the other. In fact, you can't have one without the other and, and truly be loving, still have love as your expression. Because on the one hand, look, it can be easy to be outraged by evil without much inclination toward compassion in our time. But outrage 
minus compassion, just obviously over time brings about, and really the, the primary position of it, it brings about a hardened heart that results in a kind of arrogance that believes me to be better than everybody else, you know? And you can see how easily that would happen. We see a kind of arrogant, how an arrogant tribalism can result in outrage without compassion, a belief that we're so much better. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with the people who disagree? And so, and so some of us need to hear that. Some of us specifically need to hear, myself included, that the gospel actually doesn't lend you that kind of response. We need to hear that. Listen to me now. Apart from the sheer grace of Christ at work in the heart of the believer, a part of the sheer grace of Christ in doing for us what we could never do for ourselves, we would be in active rebellion against our Creator. John is 100% saying that. There's no doubt. This is a part of, it, of, of the theme throughout his gospel account, and it's all over the Scriptures. Short of the grace of God, there go I. But by the grace of God, there go I. So, apart from the sure grace of Christ at work in our heart, we would be in active rebellion against our Creator. And so, of course, we would always side with those who perpetrate evil if it weren't for God's grace. So, we're not better then. Outrage alone really does lead to that kind of arrogance. And yet, others of us need to hear something else because it might be easy to, to hear this and, and sort of assume, and even read the text and Say, well, the Christian response is it's just compassion. That's how the Christian is always just called to respond, compassion. Right? After all, Jesus is, is loving. And, and we start to, to soften the language. And this is apart from any outrage in our spirits. So our inclination is compassion without outrage. Like we just respond by saying, oh, we're so grieved by that, but we're never moved to a kind of outrage that drives an action, you know? And yet, just as outrage without compassion leads to arrogance, compassion without outrage, compassion minus outrage, compassion without the kind of righteous indignation that should come to our hearts when we see evil perpetrated in this world, it just, I'm telling you, every day of the week it devolves into virtue signaling and grandstanding, and ironically, we do start to develop outrage, but it tends to be against Orthodox Christianity. And in the end, it's not very compassionate. It's, a, it's kind of a, a, veiled, a veiled arrogance masquerading as compassion in which we say, I really get it. I'm just so compassionate and loving. So we need both. There are two responses by Jesus, outrage and compassion, but one shared motivator, which is his love for us. On the other hand, this world is the created world order and act of rebellion against its creator, and at the same time, God so loved the world, right? And this is important because, listen, I don't naturally respond the way that Jesus does. I won't naturally respond the way that Jesus does. Humanity doesn't. So we've seen how Jesus responds to the people, but now let's see how the people respond to Jesus in our text. Starting in verse 36, so the Jews said, see how he loved him. The first response of the people here is what I'll describe as self-idolatry. Self-idolatry. Now, you might look at 36 and read it a few times over and think, how is this negative? 
So the Jews said, see how he loved him? What about this is idolatrous? I want to more than suggest that what's happening in the text is they're creating a Jesus after their own image already. You know, like, we might say, aren't they just, you know, saying Jesus loved Lazarus? Didn't John write that already twice in chapter 11? So aren't they on firm ground to confess that? And, you know, in both of the responses that the people have to Jesus, there's going to be some truth to the response. There's There's a surface level observation that's totally true. Jesus loved Lazarus. That's true. They're right about that, and they're, they're also, to a degree, correct to conclude that his tears, in some sense, are a demonstration of his love. The problem is, it's not the way they think. Right? They thought his tears were evidence of his love in the same way that they, they believe their grief to be evidence of love. Like, here you have Jesus weeping because of the death and destruction sin has wrought, weeping because of the pervasive unbelief around him, weeping with compassion. And yet, here, those who are in open unbelief interpret his response to be joining them in their unbelief, in their weeping without hope. We do this with Jesus. It's easier to shape him to look like us than to see what it is that he calls to, see him as he's revealed himself. And so, similarly, there's a second response, starting in 37, the last verse that's from this morning's section, but some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Remember, Jerusalem is just down the street, less than two miles away. So there are those who remember, and others who've likely heard it recounted to them many times over, about how in Jerusalem Jesus healed this man who was born blind. And so they naturally conclude, hey, Couldn't someone who did something like that also have done something about this? Couldn't he have stopped him from dying? That's the nature of the question. And and again, you might say, what's wrong with this? Like, Mary and Martha, they both talk in this way, and isn't it true? Right? Just like the other response, there's a surface-level observation that's true. Yes, Jesus did heal the blind man. Yes, he has the power over the entire created order, you guys. There's no doubt about that. He could have absolutely healed Lazarus. He could have prevented him from death. And I don't think there's any reason to suggest here that the crowd's being mocking Jesus or being contemptuous or sarcastic in any way. I think what they're expressing is genuine. But here we see another example, secondly, of spurious faith. Right? Spurious faith. This is a word that we've used. A lot of the commentaries use this term to describe the kind of faith the lacking genuine faith that we've seen throughout John's gospel. Throughout John, there are those who will only believe if Jesus performs certain signs and wonders. And even then, they just want more and more of it. It's kind of like this, yeah, you did that yesterday, but what are you doing for me today approach to Jesus. They want Jesus for the stuff, but they don't want Jesus as he's revealed himself. And yet Jesus just revealed himself as the resurrection, you guys. And yet here they are in unbelief because they, they, Jesus didn't do what they thought should happen. They have a different idea of what should, should have happened. This is, this is the second response from the people, spurious faith. And what, is, you know, what does the self-idolatry and spurious faith have in common? What's their root source? Pretty obviously it's unbelief. Right? The first does not believe in Jesus as he's revealed himself. They're both motivated by the same source because the first one doesn't believe. 
in Jesus as he's revealed himself, so they quickly insert themselves and say, well, this, this must be what's happening. The second does much the same thing, and, and it's that very unbelief that out of his love for the world moves Jesus to outrage and compassion. He is, in fact, so moved by this unbelief that he's willing to draw closer to the cross even now. This miracle draws him closer to the cross. It sets his face toward Jerusalem, where he would. What does he do in Jerusalem? Jesus believes the Father perfectly. He believes the Father perfectly. Where we respond in unbelief, he responded in perfect belief. Perfect belief in the will of God, even though the result of that was the cross, was his death. He's moved by belief belief in the Father's good will all the way to a cross. That's the nature of his perfect belief. That's how strong it is. And he died the death on that cross that we were owed for our unbelief, for our pervasive unbelief that brings about evil and wickedness and chaos. He dies that death as our substitute so that God would look on us and not see unbelief any longer, but see the perfect belief of Christ. Not see our guilt of unbelief, but his innocence. And in his resurrection, he invites us to a new life in which now we can grow in becoming more like him in his belief, becoming more like him in his love for the world rather than to, be, to shape him to look more like us. As we said at the front end, here we have this example of how we soften these moments. We, we, we get so uncomfortable with Jesus in his anger. And so we soften these moments where he's indignant or where he expresses emotions on par with anger. We don't know what to do with that. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that's how we think of him. And he is gentle as we approach him. As I said at the front end, he is gracious and he's good. But it really does remind me, you know, all this really does remind me of, of how Mr. Beaver introduces the, the Aslan, the great lion of Narnia to Susan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is, is a lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. We can trust God to love perfectly, to respond to, great, to, to, respond to us in grace and compassion, to be gentle with us, but to care so deeply about evil in this world that he will one day fully come to deal with it. To be so moved that he would rid the world of evil. And so we look to him and we ask him for help in reflecting his love to the world around us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for, Lord, showing us a picture of your love that goes beyond sentimentality. Thank you for giving us a gospel that actually does work to change and transform our hearts by grace. And so this morning, we're relying on you, Lord. We're reliant on you to show us Christ. We're reliant on you to show us the ways in which we must, in which we're called to transform our loves to yours. 
Lord, so when we pray, give us the desires of our hearts. We're not praying for you to give us what we in our human hearts desire, but rather, Lord, would you, would you give us your desires, your loves? Would you shape us to love like you? We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.